This is the Persistence of Christian Memory podcast, episode number 25, with Vince Darty and Bruce Darty. How's it going, Dad? Good to be back with you, and sorry that we've missed several weeks here, but uh, we're glad to be back on our podcast together. Let me read to you a short excerpt from a poem that Robert Browning wrote entitled A Death in the Desert. And in this poem, Browning poetically describes John, the last apostle, as uh, approaching his death. When my ashes scatter, says John, there is left on earth no one alive who knew. Consider this, saw with his eyes, handled with his hands, that which was from the first, the word of life. How will it be when none more saith, I saw? Of course, Browning is, uh, you know, taking from this idea of First John, where John talks about that which we've handled with our hands, that which we saw with our eyes, that which we heard with our ears. And Browning is trying to understand, I think, the crisis of faith or the crisis of authority that uh, accompanied the transition from the passing of the apostles on to the next generation. You know, the end of the first century saw many transitions occurring in the church. Uh, the apostles were passing. Uh, those whom the apostles had laid their hands on, they too were passing. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, tongues and prophecy and the other miraculous signs uh, were going to vanish away. And we also see in this time period the beginnings of intense persecution of Christians. Now, all of these transitions are also coupled with the rise of heretical groups who brought about, I think, a very serious authority to the church in the second century. This authority crisis brought about then three uh, reactions that I think are have been detrimental to Christianity uh, through the centuries. Those three reactions were the rise of the monarchical bishop, uh, the development of creeds, and the adoption of the use of church councils. The rise of Gnosticism brought about many fundamental changes in the early church. Now, in the origins about Gnostics, they were once believed to be an offshoot of Christianity, but uh, a lot of modern scholars now are convinced that Gnosticism arose prior to and independently of Christianity. And there's not a unanimity in scholarship on the precise origin of this pre-Christian Gnosticism. Uh, whatever it was, it contained an element and a combination of Jewish, Greek, and Hellenistic and Oriental uh, ideas. And whatever their not uh, origins, the Gnostics found Christianity attractive, and they allied with it to produce a number of second century heresies. The conglomeration of all these different things. I know in Acts chapter 17, Paul is accused of being this kind of seed picker, taking one thing from uh, one place and one thing from another, kind of mixing them all together, and he's spouting off something uh, new. He, he, he defends against, against that, uh, but would you say that's kind of how Gnosticism was of taking in different things uh, and just trying to amalgamate them all together? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure there were uh, things like that. Uh, and uh, I'm sure the Gnostics weren't the only what we would call eclectic group where they would borrow from uh, different, uh, different religions. But that, that idea of what they called Paul in Acts 17 is exactly uh, this idea. Uh, we have not really been able to understand that Gnostic groups uh, as far as their precise origins and organization. And in fact, until the, the mid 20th century, most of what was known about Gnosticism was found in the writings of church leaders who opposed it. And most famously uh, were the writings of Irenaeus, uh, the Bishop of Lyon, and uh, his writings as he uh, mentions uh, several Gnostic leaders like Marcion and Valentinus. 
But in 1979, uh, our knowledge of the Gnostics uh, was changed and uh, was added to by the discovery of some materials uh, and papyri down in Egypt. They were written in the Coptic e Egyptian language, and they were uh, found near a village called Nag Hammadi. And today we know them as the Nag Hammadi materials. And these uh, materials have been published and translated into English. And these uh, materials are from an insider's perspective on Gnosticism. And among the materials uh, that was discovered is a work known as the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, you and I would not think so much about a Gospel of Thomas because, of course, our, our Bibles doesn't do not include uh, that writing, but uh, think about uh, what the implications of a Gospel of Thomas might mean. And so uh, with the discovery of these materials is uh, now a better view of, uh, of the Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, gets its name from the Greek word for knowledge, uh, and that's gnosis. And again, we need to understand the knowledge that these people talked about was not learning in the sense of going to school and, uh, you know, sitting down with books and learning uh, from a teacher in that way. Instead, this was a gnosis or knowledge that would come from outside of man and would be revealed to him. Uh, it can be passed on <clears throat> from a teacher to others, but it really uh, is where the Gnostics claimed that they had a secret revelation or a secret wisdom that was given to them by Jesus, whom they styled as the great teacher. And uh, again, this is insightful for it helps us to understand that the Gnostics believed that man's basic problem was not sin, but instead ignorance. And now we know uh, 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 and and understand that ignorance can lead to a lot of sin, but uh, their view uh, primarily is one that uh, ignorance was the problem, and what one needs in this ignorance is having a saving saving knowledge or gnosis. Um, they had a very elaborate division of humanity as described uh, into three basic orders. On the bottom were pagans or people who had no knowledge at all of Jesus Christ. And these were viewed as people who only possessed matter. Uh, they were just physical uh, corporate bodies and that was all. In the middle uh, class, the Gnostics believed uh, these were the uh, ordinary Christians who had come into possession of a soul, but uh, they had not achieved and gone on to the highest level. And so at the highest level, these were the self-styled Gnostics who claimed that they had been illuminated or enlightened and were in possession of a pure spirit. Uh, the Gnostics uh, utilized the writings of Paul, uh, amply supplied by their own interpretations. And uh, that's important to know and understand. Uh, let me share with you what uh, uh, Irenaeus wrote about uh, these uh, interpretations that these people made of the scriptures. Uh, Irenaeus said, such is their system which neither the prophets preached, nor the Lord taught, nor the apostles handed down. They boast rather loudly of knowing more about it than others do, citing it from non-scriptural works, and as people would say, they attempt to braid ropes of sand. They try to adapt to their own sayings in a manner worthy of credence, either the Lord's parables or the prophet's sayings, or the apostles' words, so that their fabrication might not appear to be without witness. They disregard the order and the connection of scriptures, and as much as in them lies, they disjoint the members of truth. They transfer passages and rearrange them, making one thing out of another. They deceive many by the badly composed fantasies of the Lord's words that they adapt. Makes me think and, of the um, passage in, um, is it Second uh, Peter, Second Peter chapter three, 
where he talks about these people who um, they twist the scriptures. Yes. And twisting Paul's uh, things. And, you know, some things that Paul writes about and a little bit difficult to understand, but uh, it's difficult uh, in the in the correct way. Uh, it's not difficult uh, in let's just twist it and then see what happens. Um, and he's talking about these people that twist them to their own destructions. Second uh, Peter three and verse number 16. Yes, and and of course this hasn't uh, stopped since in the first century. Uh, we still have religious groups around us today that will uh, borrow and twist and uh, make scripture kind of fit to their own uh, ideas. And we also need to be very careful in our own uh, study and interpretation of the scriptures that we practice exegesis, drawing out what the scriptures say rather than eisegesis reading into the scriptures our own notions we live in a very um postmodern world um we live in a postmodern world in the sense of of morality and knowledge um where people and and i guess to give to give a little bit of credence to maybe there is something there um there it seems to be where you know people can read a multitude of uh, interpretations to something uh and i guess there's a lot of ways in which you can come to and approach uh a text whether it is uh, a book or a novel but even you know more importantly we're looking at scripture um how how do we allow for there's maybe different ways of looking at something versus now we've we've crossed the lines and the bounds of we know this is um, uh, heretic, uh, a heretic. This is someone who has gone beyond uh, what scripture has. That's a good question, Vince. And uh, I think, uh, again, what should help us in our hermeneutics, which is what uh, you're describing as we would interpret uh, scripture. Uh, and then, uh, of course, as we would interpret scripture, then we would have to make application to our present situation. But in the hermeneutic principles that uh, I have been taught, one of the things is that I always understood a passage cannot mean what it did not mean in the first century. Uh, we we take, as you said, in our very subjective uh, postmodern culture, uh, many ideas where we kind of just lift and take something and fabricate it uh, out of our make own. my own truth out of it. Yes, and uh, make make things uh, make scripture say things that the author never was intending or never uh, never permitted or was not uh, understood that way in the first century. And so we need to allow a little bit of the historical critical method. Uh, how has this scripture been interpreted uh, from through the centuries to help guide us uh, in, in this? And this is not to say everything somebody saw before, it was always right. But it is to kind of anchor us in that uh, first century understanding before we leap and make uh, applications that were never intended in the first place. What it meant for them can't mean something entirely different for me today. Yes. Uh, and, you know, things to understand about their culture, their time um, and what these men are saying. Um, now, then we have to. How does this apply uh, to the to time period which I live in? Uh, and that's going to be different from somebody who lived, you know, even in my own country 40, 50 years ago um, in the things in which you face and you're going through. Um, but it, it's got to be where uh, what was the original meaning and then the application to where I am. Yes. One of the. Uh, one of the things that we do as we study the Bible, we're very anxious to say, what does this mean to me? And we need to first pause and say, what does this mean? And then make that application. And so the Gnostics, they, uh, they had their ideas. 
they went to scripture for proof texts as uh, Irenaeus talked about it and uh, wove together all of their uh, different things to, to supposedly lend credence to this idea that they were, uh, again, uh, this was uh, the way the Bible was teaching. And so these Gnostics borrowed from the writings of Paul, borrowed materials from the, uh, the Gospels, and uh, they mostly organized themselves in a model where there would be a teacher, uh, think of the master to the disciples uh, in this kind of fashion as he would pass on to them this secret knowledge. Now, fundamental to almost all the Gnostic groups, and we have to understand Gnostic is kind of an umbrella term. Uh, it there were variations and differences between these different groups. But fundamental to almost all of these groups was a dualism of nature that was expressed in contrasts. Uh, it would be light as opposed to darkness, truth as opposed to falsehood, good as opposed to evil, spirit as opposed to matter. And in a certain way, that's a right way of looking at it. You know, Jesus is the light and he's getting rid of the darkness. There is right and wrong. There is, uh, um, you know, in certain terms that is right. But again, then once those things aren't developed and defined further, now uh, are you seeing deviation from what has been what has been taught, what has uh, been proven in Jesus' life, and what has been recorded by those those closest disciples? Right, and uh, it and so again, there are things uh, that the Gnostics found in the Gospels that they could use and borrow and adapt to their own needs. And so their dualism uh, was expressed in elaborate uh, myth. Uh, describing uh, the origin of man and his purpose and his salvation. Man, according to the Gnostics, was viewed as being composed of three parts. He had a body, that is the material, but then he had a soul, and then he had a spirit. And again, think of how this, uh, uh, again, uh, corresponded to what they saw in society, where the lowest class, the pagans, were only material people. Uh, Christians were the second class or the middle class as composed and having a soul, but it was the elite, the spiritual elite of the Gnostics uh, that uh, was that they were the ones viewed as uh, rising to the highest. With this understanding of man, uh, they looked on man as being uh, imprisoned in a in their body you know you have a this uh, part of you that's trapped inside this body and you're frustrated because of this and deeply dissatisfied and you're you're wanting to break free from all of these kind of things and uh, this frustration again would appeal to those of the lower classes who would be then uh, easily cultivated to be able to uh, join and learn in this. And so elaborate myths were developed by the Gnostic sects to talk about salvation as coming by way of a messenger from above. This messenger from above, uh, he breaks through uh, the different uh, star spheres and planetary spheres to bring this saving gnosis to man. And uh, this revelation then, once it was given, would awaken the spirit that was trapped deep within the body and the soul. And uh, they believed at death, this spirit would then be free from the body and would begin to make the long journey through all the different imprisoning spheres till it finally would be freed and absorbed into the all spirit or all divine. And so uh, they, they had a, a way of teaching and describing things that I think appealed to a large class of people, but it was, uh, again, uh, built around uh, several uh, false assumptions. The Gnostics depicted Jesus as a messenger from above who came to reveal this saving knowledge. He is the uh, messenger who comes down. He is the great teacher. 
And the apostles, the 12 who received his message, then were passing this message on to others. Uh, as uh, Jesus then was this uh, savior of mankind, he had to be a pure spirit, according to the Gnostics, for otherwise, if he was a person who, of this world, he himself would be imprisoned in soul and body as men are. And again, when you're on the inside in prison, a fellow prisoner can't help you if you are a prisoner too. And so they had a very different view of the incarnation of Jesus. And in fact, uh, it uh, was in their minds that Jesus never really uh, was God in the flesh. If it seemed to his disciples that Jesus was human, uh, they said this was either an intentional deception by Jesus or it was the lack of uh, the, uh, the disciples being able to understand what a pure spirit being was. And so the Gnostics were sure, very sure, that Jesus was not composed of body and soul, that he was not a born of the Virgin Mary, and they were very sure he did not die on the cross. And so they had a very different view of Jesus. And because of this, they rejected the Old Testament and the idea that Jesus was the son of Jehovah. In their minds, if Jehovah God is the creator of the material world and all things material are evil, then you have to say that Jehovah was an evil God. And uh, they would not uh, accept that, uh, that Jesus came uh, as the son of this God. And so when you look at this, there is a very different understanding of anthropology and man and his makeup. But there's a very different understanding of uh, Jesus. And uh, they had no use for a crucified savior who was, bought, going to, who was raised bodily and who would return for a second time to this world. And uh, so while in some ways uh, the, there are some uh, you know, parallels here, uh, in many ways it is a very different Christ when you look at this. The concept of Jesus being 100% man and also at the same time, 100% God is something uh, people struggle with uh, back then and even today. Um, why do you think people have these, these hang-ups um, with, with Jesus being that 200% as I just described? Well, um, you know, Vince, if, if, I could explain all this, uh, then we would solve the church problems that have been going on uh, since the time of the early church with their uh, division over uh, the, the idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and like you said, those problems have been discussed for centuries, and they still pose problems for us today. The important thing is we need to accept what the Bible says about the three persons of the Godhead. And uh, we need to understand uh, when the Bible describes God as being one, it's not a mathematical formula where people say, how can three be one? But it is the idea of one can also represent union. Uh, think of uh, how God uh, made man uh, and woman for each other. Uh, the two shall come together and become one flesh. Well, they're two persons. They're one flesh in the sense of their union, their unity. And I think that, uh, that when we see when the Bible says God is one, we need to think more in that idea rather than some mathematical formula. One time um, I was in a class and um, a very, very good teacher, very, very knowledgeable teacher, um, but he put forward something that um, I, I'm not sure if I understood and maybe maybe he didn't get to explain it all at the time, but um, he talked about Jesus and being tempted. Um, and he was saying, because God cannot be tempted, um, there was no real temptation that Jesus went through. Um, like say for instance, when, when Satan came to him, um, but 
in the book of Hebrews, who talks about he was tempted in all points. We are yet without sin. Uh, and that, and then, you know, granted, I think there is a hard thing to uh, conceptualize there. But to me, uh, and maybe I'll get your thoughts on this, with Jesus coming in a limited form, a body, um, he had those physical needs and desires. Um, and I do believe that Jesus did have the capability of sinning while he was on this earth, except he always chose to overcome those temptations. Uh, but he, the instructor even had trouble that saying that Jesus could even possibly be tempted even, uh, when he was on this earth. Um, but when I thought about that and I thought about the position he was taking, uh, it kind of makes it take away part of what Jesus came. He, he came in a bodily form. Right. And, uh, and again, uh, that coming in in the form being found as a man uh you know it was where again it was for our benefit uh so that we could again see the savior and know that he was tempted in all points like as we are that uh he when he had weaknesses in the flesh he's able to understand our weaknesses of the flesh and how we can disappoint him. And, and so uh, the, the purpose of the incarnation, uh, again, one of those mysteries that uh, we, we have to accept without, uh, I think, uh, just like we accept the idea of the three persons in one is uh, where we accept these, uh, but with the, again, the realization that as Jesus lived in the flesh, he was still fully divine uh, and and always chose to do the Father's will. Well, and when you think of the, the omni things with God, um, God is a spirit. And so you, que- you have to question, well, like, what does God not have? Um, and maybe the answer is limitation. And with Jesus coming uh, and taking on the form of a man, there is a uh, limitation to one person, one place at one time. Um, and part of being made a little bit lower than the angels uh, is accepting that that limitation uh, right. that Jesus goes through. Uh, right. And again, going through those things uh, and it's same in the in the book of Hebrews. I'm thinking it's in chapter two, maybe. Um he learned there was things that Jesus learned. And I think those things were learned uh, in coming in the form of a human in the flesh. Um, And because he was tempted on those ways, because he experienced those things, because he quote unquote learned those things, he's not learning new things because, you know, he's all knowing God, but there is a experience that a spirit cannot have that a, a physical body does have. Right. And and it's through those self-imposed limitations. Think of the passage of Paul in Philippians chapter two. Uh, you know, Christ, when he, he uh, thought it not robbery to equal, be equal with, with God, but he emptied himself and right. took on the form uh, of man. Uh, and and so by doing that, uh, he becomes he's still God. But now he takes on as you say, the limitations of this body, the needs of a body uh, that thirsted, was hungry, grew tired, as uh, the scriptures teach us. Well, and to the physical coming in the flesh was the only way in which some of the problems of the issues of sin and death could be uh, dealt with. Uh, Romans um what is it, five and, and six, talking about coming in the flesh, beating sin and death on his own turf, so to speak, uh, coming to the, this earth. Uh, and so taking on some of these uh, ideas that Jesus only came in a spiritual form, you're robbing the truth of uh, of, uh, of who he is and, and um, causing all kinds of extra issues by saying he didn't. Right. And, uh, and, and again, uh, it changes a lot of very fundamental uh, Christian doctrines. Uh, and this is why men like Irenaeus and others 
uh, Justin Martyr. He opposed Marcion, who came uh, into the church at Rome and uh, created a following uh, of Gnostics uh, there. But the, the reason why these church fathers opposed it, the Gnostics was because it fundamentally altered uh, the, the gospel. If Jesus did not uh, die on the cross, then what about our sin problem? If Jesus did not rise bodily from the tomb, uh, what about the uh, hope that we have of having the, that same kind of a resurrection? If Jesus is not going to return for the second coming to claim his own and bring us home, then what is our hope of the future? And so all of these, uh, these Gnostic ideas fundamentally changed uh, the gospel message. And with this, uh, there was also, I think, a very fundamental behavior change as well. Uh, this intense dualism that the Gnostics had, where they viewed the material or the physical as being all evil and the spiritual all as good, this was going to lead you in one of two directions. On the one hand, you would want a total separation from the material world. You know, I don't want to be tempted. I don't want to have my body uh, things and uh, tempted by things or even uh, my body having to use the necessities uh, of life. And here's where I think the Gnostics found Paul attractive. He was a single man. Uh, he talks about uh, how he could uh, live without, uh, you know, eating meat or these kind of things. And, and there is an ascetic side of Christianity that appeals to us in denial of the body and denial of physical uh, needs. But, the, but there's always a need for balance. I'm thinking about we're doing a study right now in one of our classes on the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon goes down a lot of different directions of how you can live your life uh, and the different things you can do with your body uh, in this life. And all of them are not bad. All right, There are things that are illicit and, and uh, contrary to God's will, but there are good things that you can experience in this life, in this body. Uh, that are perfectly within the bounds of, uh, of God. It, God created us with such a, a way of desiring and having uh, um, pleasure, but it, it's always within, a, um, within the right, right framework. Right. And so the, the Gnostics uh, did not look at material body as something good created by God, but again, as something evil, as something bad. And so on the one hand, there were those who went to the extreme of a very rigid asceticism in the denial of the body. There were the others, though, who if you taught that the idea that the body is evil, but the spirit is all good, then they uh, reasoned this way. Nothing I do with my body touches my spirit. And so they would go the other way. Uh, the body could be indulged in uh, for sex or food or drink or wealth without any harm to the spirit. And so, you know, we, we think of Stoicism and uh, the uh, Epicureans uh, there in Acts 17. Again, two different aspects of uh, looking at life. And in the, in the same way, the, the Gnostics had either these ones who practiced rigid asceticism or these ones who uh, just uh, gave in and enjoyed everything because they believed it didn't, uh, it didn't touch their, their, their souls. But the important thing, uh, both variations of this behavior, whether you're an ascetic or an indulgent, a libertarian, we could say, all of this is living your Christian life from a purely individualistic basis rather than developing responsibilities to other people. Uh, you're only concerned about yourself. You're only doing the things for yourself. You're not doing things in service for others. You're not relieving the, uh, you know, the, the pains and hurts and, and problems of others. And so uh, the dualism of Gnosticism not only changed Christ, 
but it changed Christian responsibility as well. And it minimized that corporate responsibility that we understand as the body of Christ. Well, I'm not so much uh, tempted by Gnosticism today, and I don't know that uh, there's a large Gnostic following. Uh, perhaps there is. But uh, the reason why we brought up this uh, idea for our conversation today is to talk about the response that the what we would call the Orthodox Christians in this early second century and into uh, throughout the second century, the response that they made, because it's in the response here that I think Christianity was being very subtly shifted from uh, what it had been under the apostles to something else. And uh, again, when we uh, think about the response, uh, they, because of the way they're reacting, they're overreacting in what was produced. The first response was in the development of what I call the monarchical bishop or the king or independent bishop. Uh, what we see in the writings of second century authors, starting with Ignatius in the first century in the in around or I mean in the second century around 115 AD, but also culminating in uh, the writings of Irenaeus about 180 AD, is this gradual development from what we see in the New Testament. Think about Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's addressed to the elders or the bishops and deacons and the saints of the church at Philippi. Well, what we see here is a development where a bishop will be elevated above uh, the elders or the presbyters, and then under them are the deacons. And so is it's this uh, gradual shift uh, into a threefold kind of organization uh, of bishop elders, deacons. Let me share with you a writing from, uh, this is from uh, uh, Ignatius, and uh, he says, uh, as he wrote to the Tralians, uh, this was a group of Christians uh, in that uh, geographic position, he says, it's necessary, therefore, as indeed you do, that you do nothing without the bishop. Subordinate yourselves also to the board of elders as to the apostles of Jesus Christ, our hope, in union with whom we shall be found if we so live. And the deacons, too, as ministers of the mysteries of Jesus Christ, uh, must please all in every way. For they are not servers of food and drink, but servants of the church of God. So they must be on their guard against accusations as against fire. In the same way, all, everyone must respect the deacons as Jesus Christ as they do the bishop. Also, for he symbolizes the father and the elders as a council of God and a band of apostles. Without these, nobody can be called a church. It's interesting to read here in uh, Ignatius in, uh, in 115 AD that he's telling the Christian, don't do anything without the bishop. You need the bishop. You got to follow the bishop. And uh, the reasoning that I make on this is this is seems like maybe a new development because he has to tell them over and over again uh, about the bishop. Uh, you don't find this language in the New Testament. And so it's an after New Testament development. But uh, if and it must not have been very common yet. Uh, otherwise, uh, Ignatius wouldn't have to say over and over, do things uh, with, with the bishop and, uh, again, be very careful to obey all that he says. Um, if this was already understood and accepted, uh, he wouldn't have to say it over and over again to do this. And so the rise of this bishop above the group of elders is one where we see he presided over things of worship. Uh, he, uh, you know, would be the one overseeing the, the Lord's table uh, for communion. Uh, he would be the one teaching the, the candidates who were going to be baptized. Uh, and uh, he is uh, also seen as a spokesman uh, and a successor uh, to the apostles.
And so you can kind of see where power is going to um, funnel into one individual. Um, and in, in word, you have, well, Christ is the head and then the elders and then the deacons uh, and you have the congregation. Um, but then in practice, it seems, you know, everything's kind of flowing through uh, this one funnel of the head bishop. Um, and you, you, can, you can understand where those issues can then come if um, this person is incorrect. There's just one person. Um, and you can see why you have in the New Testament, there should be a plurality of elders at a congregation. And again, think, Vince, uh, many times things happen and take place that are not intentional things, but we kind of just kind of gravitate into them. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a congregation, but I've been a part of the congregation where people talk about the head elder. And I don't think the head elder himself talks about himself that way. Uh, maybe there might be some who do, uh, but uh, it's, you know, you, you know, you find in an eldership different dynamics and different strengths uh, of these men. Uh, they're godly men who uh, want to trust the Bible and uh, shepherd the flock. But sometimes there are gifts that some men, men have that uh, maybe one man's more at ease standing in front of the congregation, and so he does it more often. Uh, maybe one man uh, is uh, more trained in Bible that uh, lifts him above and makes him uh, a better teacher. Um, you might have uh, one man who is uh, uh, more uh, in tune with brotherhood happenings and things like this. And so as a result, uh, there is this, I, I don't think it's an intentional thing, but it's kind of something we fall into where let's see what the elder so-and-so says before we approach all the elders. And so in, in some ways, I think it can happen even unintentionally. But notice, I think the New Testament even tells us about a man who was power hungry. And as you were describing there, uh, the person who would uh, then be in this position of power and allow it to go to his head. Think of third John and how John, you know, has been writing to Gaius. And John says in third John nine, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. And therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words and not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And he who does God, good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. All right. And so here. Is Diotrephes a forerunner of uh, maybe this uh, single bishop kind of idea? I, I can even go a little bit further back when you think about Paul exhorting the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Um, in Acts 20 and verse 28, he says, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock among whom... Uh, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherds of the church, which God uh, of God, which he purchased with his own blood. But then verse 29, he says, I know this after I depart, savage wolves will come in among you. And that phrase in among you, not sparing the flock, uh, is he specifically talking about among the eldership? You know, uh, one or however many uh, these savage wolves coming in among the eldership. And that's a dangerous thing that um, he's looking in the future towards. Yes. And so uh, I think these uh, these passages in the New Testament clearly uh, are uh, trying to address these kind of things. In the second place, uh, the second response that we see in the second century is the development of creeds. Now, creed uh, comes to us. It's just an uh, English adaptation of the Latin uh, phrase credo, which means I believe. In Greek, it would have been pistueo, 
but uh, the Latin uh, form has uh, been preserved in the, this idea of the creed. The creed was uh, used uh, when a person was being baptized. It, they would be solid statements to show that you were believing in the orthodox truth. Uh, many of these creeds contained practical, uh, what I would call anti-Gnostic phrases, uh, just to, again, uh, delineate and separate uh, anybody who uh, maybe would be on the border with Gnosticism. And we have to remember, too, uh, in this period of the second century, when uh, the New Testament is still being collected and put together and uh, still being copied by hand, uh, everyone wouldn't have their own pocket New Testament. And so if you had a easy way of memorizing uh, some important doctrinal truths, like in a creed statement, this uh, creed would be your touchstone of faith when you uh, could not turn to uh, book, chapter, and verse uh, for what you believed. And so the development of these creeds uh, occur. Let me share with you uh, the old Roman creed. Uh, this is dated now from about the year 180 AD. And so here again, toward the end of the second century, uh, the old Roman creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his Holy Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried. The third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, in the Holy Church, in the forgiveness of sins, in the resurrection of the body, and in the Greek version of this, the life everlasting. But look at these Gnostic, anti, what I would call anti-Gnostic uh, phrases. God the Father, this is uh, Jehovah God of the Bible, which the Gnostics said was evil. Uh, Jesus being his son, the virgin birth, his crucifixion, uh, his burial, his resurrection, uh, his return, all of these things were practical anti-Gnostic statements. And, and so the use of the creed uh, occurs. Now, there's nothing wrong in, in talking about what we believe. In fact, we sing many hymns that I think are creedal, uh, creedal type of uh, hymns when we worship God. Uh, I'm thinking now of that uh, one song, we saw thee not when thou didst come, you know, but we believe, and it's over and over, but we believe, we believe there's uh, those are good things. And so a creed in a certain way is, is not a bad thing. But when the creed becomes the replacement for the Bible or a creed becomes our uh, statement to interpret the Bible for us, this is when uh, we again, there is this subtle shifting off of base of the true foundation of Christianity. The you know all these you these things are written in the time they're addressing some issue or thing, um, you know I'm, I'm I guess I'm, my mind is thinking about um, where these things eventually evolve into um, when you have all these different denominations you have these different sects uh, in the Middle Ages and uh, you know when the Protestants come um, and even then when we talk about some people in the restoration movement where they're taking their um, confession, they say, uh, you know, are, are you following this? And as, as much as it uh, adheres to scripture, that's what I'm uh, doing. And so I, I guess it's where you get into a problem when you elevate this to a higher standard and authority than scripture. When, when I read all scriptures given by God and uh, is inspired by God, um, is that the end all of the argument or is it i got to go through whatever interpretation and creed uh and that's that's i guess where the rub is right and uh and creedal statements uh such as like the westminster confession of faith uh which is what barton w stone had to give his allegiance to 
those obviously are more than just faith statements. They are interpretive uh, statements. These are man's commentary on something else. And that's where the danger lies is you could have the very best intentions in the world. And, and I'm not against reading of commentaries or uh, things like that, but you could be wrong. You could, you could have the best intentions in the world. You could even be saying something right, but the language that you use over time could become in such a way where it is twisted to, to mean something that it wasn't originally. All right. Well, the third uh, thing that we want to see that develops in this uh, time period at the close of the uh, second century is the development of church councils. Um, the Gnostics uh, divided and troubled many congregations. And we have to remember there were other heretical groups that uh, arise in the second century, like the Montanists in uh, Asia Minor and uh, other places. And so this crisis of authority uh, stimulated uh, meetings of these representatives of church coming together. And I'm sure, again, coming together probably in a good way where uh, we're having some church problems uh, and Maybe we need to discuss this with fellow uh, Christians in in these different cities. And you might come together. They might come together and you might hear a conversation that says, uh, are you guys having trouble with uh, Marcion over there? Uh, do you have followers of Valentinus that are plaguing you and trying to take away brethren and this kind of thing? And and they would. Yeah, we're having the same. So. And so out of this, uh, maybe in a very natural way, grows the idea of councils. And the results of these councils, or what they called synods, was they were affirming the authority of the universal church. Uh, they also go a long way in uh, pushing the canon of scripture to closure, saying uh, these books and only these books are part of the canon, not something like the Gospel of Thomas or, or something like that. And, uh, and so there were benefits of these councils. But again, what has happened through the centuries, just like what has happened through the centuries with creeds, these uh, now meetings have become authoritative meetings for, uh, for imposing and uh, directing uh, churches that are under these, uh, these councils. And uh, they become every bit as authoritative as, uh, again, our New Testament. And uh, again, there's nothing to, to suggest that these men are infallible men uh, as they would make and impose their will in these, uh, in these church councils. Yeah, I have two kind of just follow-ups because in all these reactions Gnosticism obviously was a, a wrong how does something that is good or has good in it become something that evolves into something that is not right that is not good how does it evolve uh, to that point well uh, I, I don't know if I, I can uh directly state, but I, I think so many times when we're not satisfied with what God has given to us and we're not trusting enough that God's word and God's way is enough, then we've got to make changes either in church organization like they did or we've got to add to God's word uh, to make a creed uh, like they did. Or, we, or we're trusting in our own wisdom that we're wise enough uh, to handle these things. And, and so in, in a basic way, I think it comes down to faith and trust. And a lack of that is what, you know, it was seen as we've got to take these extra measures to do this. Yeah, it, it, well, you know, the holy men from God written in Scripture— I can trust. And now as the um, books of the Bible are being collected and 
Uh, I can know these things. You know, Peter's writing these things because he knows and soon I'm going to be gone. And so while I'm still in this tent, I'm going to write these things so that you can always have these things. And and again, like you said, am I trusting that God's given me all things for life and godliness? Uh, is this the um, is this the scripture that is once and for all given? Um, and yeah, because you know issues will pop up from time to time, different ones in different places. But it's always where am I going back to? Am I going to a council and that's going to decide it? Or am I going back to scripture and letting it speak to what what issues are being at hand? Yes. And so, and again, remember, this is where this crisis of authority because of the Gnostic problem comes in when, you know, the apostles are all gone. When the, even the ones like Timothy and maybe Titus, uh, may be at the end of their lives. And, uh, and remember again with uh, persecution, especially like the church in Rome, in, uh, when you know, Nero uh, blames the Christians for the fire at Rome, there's a lot of the good leaders that are uh, you know, uh, perhaps even martyred in that time period. And so, uh, and this is not to say there was an absence of leadership, but maybe not the best leadership. And uh, false teaching uh, surely can take a, a advantage of those kind of situations. And so uh, the second century crisis of authority brought this separation of Gnosticism. But it's in this reaction uh, where I think church history has been more deeply affected. And then that that's my second question. How do we you know, when we see these things come up, how do we avoid the pendulum swing that goes too far? How do we avoid the knee jerk reaction that ends up causing and maybe making something worse than uh, what you wanted it? That wasn't your intention. Right. And uh, we need to keep this idea of the extremes begetting extremes uh, as we would think of Okay, I see this extreme right out here to to the right. Now, can I bring things back but not go to the other extreme all the way on the left? Uh, that balance, the golden mean in the middle, uh, that's certainly needed. Uh, we need balance in our preaching ministry, balance in our Bible study, and uh, balance uh, so that we won't uh, go to these kind of things. But to say that we can do this perfectly is to, uh, I think, say too much. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, in uh, the what the Orthodox believers did, what the mainstream folks did, is uh, they sowed, sowed the seeds that uh, would uh, bring further and further departures from New Testament Christianity by the very way they reacted to the Gnostics. Yeah, so um, the putting all, all authority into one person, and that person's not Christ or God, uh, mistake. And, and even if it was the best intentions, it's a mistake. Um, uh, putting things into creeds. Now we're writing things that are uh, you know, different from Scripture. And again, all the greatest intentions, but is uh, God's word going to be have the final say? And then finally, the councils, again, uh, maybe not just in one man, but now it's just one group. Uh, they are going to dictate. And again, those those things are you're adding to what what uh, God has put forward in Scripture. And even with the best of intentions can go off track. Yes, it can. And so we need to, uh, you know, we need to look at ourselves and make sure that we are, uh, again, trying to uh, stick with the Bible, the Bible that speaks of bishops and deacons as church organization and autonomous congregations, uh, sticking with the Bible. Uh, you know, one of the things that restorers talked about is the New Testament is our creed, not 
some other uh, document. And then understanding as much as worldly wisdom uh, might be held uh, between individuals, uh, it is to say we're not going to trust in worldly wisdom of men, but we're going to trust in God. Be thou my